0: News & Bruce. I'm Mike Heslin, And I'm Errol Yabuke. And Errol, we don't, uh, normally we fix it with these conversations. We didn't quite need to fix it this week because our main story is actually a pretty positive one that uh, President Biden actually announced a a significant vaccine mandate across the country.
1: Yeah. And there was other good news. Evidence indicates that we're going to decrease the child poverty rate across the country. And after after several long weeks, I felt like Mike. It was it was looking on the up and up. Um, yeah, part of you, which is you are on the mend. I am on the mend. I am having my first beer in a couple of weeks post uh, post surgery, so I'm, I'm happy for that. And generally, just happy to be back in the saddle, Mike, and, and talking to you about the news. Well, happy you're here. Let's uh, let's get right to it. Let's do it.
0: Welcome, everyone.
1: Hey, Mike. It's good to hey see y'all. you. Good to see you too. How are you feeling this week? Uh, well, we took a week off, as as you and and listeners will know, and that's because I had uh, surgery on my Achilles last week. We don't want to lose listeners, and so I won't. I'll spare you the details, but needless to say, I am drinking a beer again for the first time in a couple of weeks, which means I'm right. off the pain meds. Uh, because I'm a responsible adult, and I do not pain med and drink alcohol at the same time, so uh, yeah, I, I think better at least yeah. on the road to recovery, and and that's a good thing. Are you in a cast right now, or what's the situation? I will be in a cast as soon as they take the stitches out, which I have a photo that is uh, G like gnarly that I can show you of. of I went to the doctor today and and actually saw it, so. Once the stitches come out, then I'll be in a cast for I don't know, maybe a month or so. But nice. I have this cool, like I don't. When was the last time you were on crutches? Have you ever been on crutches? I have never been on crutches. You believe that? Oh, you better knock on some wood, my friend. Yeah, um, seriously. Uh, good sound effects. So, I have unfortunately been on crutches several times, and it sucks. It's just, it's just really, really inconvenient uh, all around. And this time. The the orthopedist was like, oh, don't get crutches. He was like, you can have crutches, but, you know, check out this new thing. And it's called the iWalk. And if you Google iWalk, you see a bunch of really happy-looking people walking around on a peg leg. And so I now have a peg leg that is called the iWalk. And it takes some getting used to because your leg still doesn't bend. As you Google it right now, you'll see, like, You can actually like function pretty well with with your hands free, which is like the most annoying thing I think about crutches is that like, you know, hey, can you pick that up for me? Can you take it there? Like I even picked up my toddler today for the first time in a couple of weeks, which was like really awesome. You know what else you could
0: do with that? Just looking at it for the listeners is commandeer Spanish
1: galleons. I think that's probably true. I'm going into the office. I think on Thursday, and I'm I'm debating wearing an eye patch. That would be so strong. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I think it
0: needs to happen. How are you, Mike? Uh, I am good. I'm good. I, um, you know, actually, there's there's a bit of a um, sort of personal professional update I've got as well, which is. Um, Some of our listeners may know, I think we referenced this in some early episodes, that I uh, have been running my own consulting operation for the bulk of the pandemic period, um, and just recently decided to uh, jump over and join one of my clients in a co-founder role full-time, which is very exciting. Um, So I'm now the co-founder and chief product officer at a company called First90, which is a B2B software company uh, that I'm super excited about. Won't really change anything about the podcast, but just figured it was worth mentioning because it's something that I'm excited about in life.
1: Yeah. And on the podcast, we should talk about things that we're excited about in life. And I also think like, I'm assuming you accepted zero salary because they gave you the sexiest of all sexy titles. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was, uh, it,
0: it, everything's a negotiation, right? <laughs> well, good on you. I'm excited for you that you are off the painkillers and onto the uh, you know,
1: more casual painkillers.
0: So <laughs> what do you have going
1: on? <laughs> the, the casual painkiller that I have is not casual. Um, although it could kill some pain. Um, it is a founders, uh, which I love me some founders brewing. Great brewery. Um, it is a KBS flavored stout. And it's actually a beer that I bought for my wife's birthday a while ago that she never drank. And I was like, well, I'm kind of feeling celebratory. Can I do this one on the (laughs) podcast tonight? And she was like, yeah, sure, fine. So I'll I'll replace this eventually, um, even though her birthday was in April. Uh, But I have to say, this is, I mean, chocolate, coffee, and hugs, like all all up in there. Hugs, Hugs for your throat, the best kind. Hugs for the throat and everywhere on the way down. It's good. Excellent. Uh, So I've got a little bit of a
0: change of pace tonight. And um, it has something to do with the fact that uh, my dog was having some stomach issues last night. uh, And my daughter is two and a half years old. And between the two of those, I was up about every 90 minutes to two hours throughout the night last night. Uh, So I am drinking a uh, Waterloo sparkling water. (laughs) <laughs> black cherry flavor this evening. <laughs> and honestly, uh, I don't have enough good things to say about this. Uh, it is just Waterloo. Uh, I wanted to take an episode to plug anyway, cause it just brings so much joy into my life. Like there's no science that says I need to stop drinking these at any point, which is lovely. There is something about the flavored sparkling water. I think the, the odes to LaCroix and its ilk are a little bit played out at this point, but, um, But still, it's like the rush of opening a new pack of socks from Target. Yeah, you know, or like the the joy of broiling the broccoli just right. Yes, right. This is it's it's the satisfaction of like fixing an appliance in your house and having it actually work.
1: (laughs) That's that's what I'm working with here with every sip. Austin Texans finest, and you're 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 rocking the black cherry tonight. Black cherry, yeah. I think that might be my favorite. It's strong. The, the peach the peach is a close second. Yeah, I'm sure there's something that's going to come out that says that the fizzy bubbles are bad for our stomach or something. But uh, until that happens, I'm very much with you on the sparkling water, especially okay. the fruity spark- sparkling water. Just We just can't read it. That's what it is. <laughs> so we'll just be like every other American out there. <laughs> Spoiler alert, we're going to talk about uh vaccine mandates uh <laughs> and talk about right. people not reading things and not following directions. <laughs> on um, that note. Yeah, let's get to it. So, this week marked the 20th anniversary of 9/11, Mike, and I'm sure you were aware on Saturday. Um obviously a, a hugely somber occasion for uh, folks all over the country. And, and quite frankly, all over the world, there were some really touching images of um, kind of the changing of the guard at Buckingham Palace paying homage mm-hmm. to, uh, you know, they, I think they played the national the U S national anthem and, you know, lots of support from, from friends and allies uh, around the world. But obviously, you know, for those who were living in the United States, especially those who were living in, DC or New York or uh, the small town in Pennsylvania. I mean, it was very real. And I was living in Texas at the time. And I certainly remember where I was and how I felt and and how, you know, you could just sort of feel like the world was changing to to be here at the 20 year mark. um, I think, especially after the, you know, a withdrawal from Afghanistan, that was anything but graceful. Um, It just is, it's been a lot of mixed emotions, uh, for me over the weekend.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, it, it was such a personal moment for everyone, right? It's the thing that everyone remembers exactly where they were. If you were old enough to remember anything at that point. Um, and like we, we've talked about it a bit, um, on the show in the past, but, um, as you said, somber day, somber anniversary, um, And, uh, and, and, but there was, there was some news around it as well. Uh, So what, what were you paying attention to on that day?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it was, it was Joe Biden's first 9-11 as president. And, um, you know, everybody who knows anything about Joe Biden knows that these are the types of things that he's good at. Like he's good at um, empathy and, Mm -hmm. you know, this sort of quiet, steady leadership and I think that was on full display. I mean, I, I don't think he gave a formal speech the the entire day, which I thought was, that's a deliberate choice. Yeah. right? Like when the president of the United States decides not to make a speech on the 20th anniversary of 9-11, that's because he wants others to to be heard. And I think the focus on the families and the focus on kind of the the victims and the heroes and, and all of that stuff. So, you know, he... <laughs> He did, among other things, he delivered Bud Light to the Shanksville, Pennsylvania Volunteer Fire Department. That's awesome. Which I, which I was a really nice touch and certainly a News & Brews uh, approved move uh, there by, by President Biden. Elsewhere in New York, I don't know if you follow Cory Booker on Instagram, but he had this really I mean, Cory Booker is a great communicator, just generally, like full stop. I'll just say,
0: I miss, the, I miss the Cory Booker of like the mayor days on Twitter when he would be
1: like, you know, live tweeting, pulling people out of burning buildings and stuff. Yeah, I mean, he does that, but like with words these <laughs> days. I have several friends who worked on his presidential campaign and who have worked in and around him and, and they just can't say enough like good things about the good person that is Cory Booker. And so just like knowing that, and having this sort of one degree of separation, I feel like from, from him, I, I he, there was this photo of him leaning against this uh, 9-11 uh, tribute in Liberty Park in Jersey City. And it was apparently the moment that he found the name of his childhood best friend who died in the towers. Oh, wow. um, and he just had this kind of moment of silence and, uh, you know, wrote a really touching Thing about about the guy and his family and and things like that and so it was certainly a, a really touching moment and I feel like I bring that up not only because I like Cory Booker but because um I, I feel like there was just a lot of that happening yep. uh, around the country and a lot of appreciation for those types of moments and what people were going through um I I don't know I Donald Trump is like ostensibly from New York and so like I was googling around like where's Donald Trump like what Hmm. speech did he give you know as I wanted to be you know fair and balanced and whatever and and in case you were wondering what the former president was doing he did several campaign style stops at police and fire stations in midtown Manhattan which means he was not only in New York not only in New York state, not only in New York city, but he was in Manhattan
0: mm-hmm. and
1: did not go to ground zero. And basically on these stops, he, he talked about anything other than nine 11. Let uh, me guess. Did he talk about himself? He talked about winning the election, which is a favorite topic. And he talked about apparently, you know, the withdrawal from Afghanistan and how he would have done it better, et cetera, et cetera. And then to cap it off in the evening, did you see what he did on Saturday evening? I did not. He narrated a pay-per-view boxing match.: Huh?: On Saturday night, September eleventh, 2021: Because of course he did. I just really have no words. <laughs> How did you experience the day, Mike?
0: You know, it was I did not do a, a grand tour of meaningful sites necessarily, but um, one thing that we did, Bree and I, we watched the 9 11 documentary, which was mm-hmm. on Apple TV, that sort of followed. Uh, President Bush on that day and how the initial decisions were made and what the sequence was events, of events was really going kind of minute by minute through the day of 9 11. Um, and it was well done. You know, they had interviews, uh, lot, uh, extensive interviews with Bush and with Cheney and with Condoleezza Rice and with a number of other folks who were involved at that point, folks from the Secret Service, things like that as well. This was um, not one of the documentaries about how it was all a hoax, right? <laughs> not, not that one. Uh, I think you have to go to YouTube
1: or somewhere for that. Different parts of the internet for that. <laughs> right.
0: But it was, it was striking for a number of reasons. Right, reliving that day, minute by minute, remembering both how bad and tragic it was in the moment, uh, and how surprising it was. How it just seemed so unthinkable that something like that could happen at that time, and how much worse people feared it would be in the moment right? There were however many thousand planes in the sky and, you know, someone on the documentary made a comment like these have all just been turned into missiles in an instant. That's fascinating.
1: I I remember even thinking or or hearing in Austin, you know, I was on the university of Texas campus and I heard somebody sort of early versions of misinformation passing. This is pre WhatsApp, even that like Austin, because it was the state capital of the president's home state that it was gonna be like a target or something.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, this was, this was everywhere. And I mean, it also, to
0: your point about the age and the technology, you know, they, they, they didn't have uh, adequate communication systems on Air Force One to manage these things. So they were That's getting wild. updates. The president was getting updates as they would fly over different urban centers. They would like briefly get the TD signal from that city
1: <laughs> and then it would fade away until they flew to the next one. But that's, that's how he was getting information. And there's like staffers day. with Palm Pilots like rapidly trying to, you know, document things. And, you know, they, they started running out of air in the
0: bunker under the White House where like all the Cheney and Rice and, and all the leaders in Washington were. Wow. Uh, it, it, they just weren't prepared for this to happen. But you could also see the strains of self-contradiction start to emerge in the Mm. policy of the Bush administration just within those moments. Right. So Bush himself says in an interview that, you know, he didn't want to make big decisions in the fog of fear and uncertainty that he was in on air force one that day. And then sounds reasonable. Several minutes later in the documentary, he talks about how he basically decided to declare the war on terror and make that the central policy of his administration in that plane on that day, that day, (laughs) You know, I don't think there is really any argument to make against the observation that by any measure, our response to 9-11 was far more damaging to the country than anything Al-Qaeda was capable of at that time. But it just, it adds to the sadness, knowing that, like, we knew better. The people in a position to make those decisions knew better, and this all still happened.
1: I don't know if they knew better, they just felt better. Or, like, they, they had this, you know, sensation that maybe we shouldn't act hastily, but then in comes rummy, and you're like, no, we need to act hastily. Right. This, they, is yeah, our, they, this is our chance. They had better angels somewhere, maybe is a better way to put it.
0: Yeah. You know, there's another speech that Bush gave around that time where he talked about the history of war in Afghanistan and how it's a history of, you know, early small wins followed by protracted losses and he even said up front you know we are not going to make that same mistake and it's just the same pattern where mm. there was a part of the people making the decisions that that saw this coming that knew better and just just couldn't act better yeah yeah um, now as long as we are fully acknowledging that George W Bush is is more To blame for the problems that have spiraled out of the war on terror than anyone else Uh, we can we can touch on his attempts at redemption as well Um, because i think that was this past saturday to mark the 20th anniversary he gave a speech in shanksville pennsylvania the site where united flight 93 crashed on 9 11 after passengers overwhelmed the terrorists who had hijacked it in that speech he included condemnation of today's domestic terrorism uh, saying quote we've seen growing evidence that the dangers to our country can come not only across borders but from violence that gathers within. There is little cultural overlap between violent extremists abroad and violent extremists at home, but in their disdain for pluralism, in their disregard for human life, and their determination to defile national symbols, they are children of the same foul spirit."
1: It was quote. it was such a moment. I mean, first of all, I would commend the entire nine minute speech on listeners. I, I think it's well worth your time. Um, and credit where credit's due, it was a great speech. And I think that moment was was really interesting to me because it kind of came out of nowhere in the speech. Like he Mm -hmm. was talking about reconciliation and he was talking about, you know, conflicting emotions and how, you know, there was terror on one hand and heroism on the other hand. And it was just, you know, I I felt like he was talking about what I was feeling in terms of, you know, lack of coherence and, and contradiction and then he just dropped this like, and then domestic terrorism's needs to stop yeah. um, line that, that I was really kind of taken aback on. And then, you know, later in the speech, he actually, he said, at a time when religious bigotry might have flowed freely, I saw Americans reject prejudice and embrace people of Muslim faith. That is the nation that I know. And, and I actually remember him post 9-11, standing on ground zero, sort of trying to bat away this idea of like all Muslims are bad. And, and like he did in the early days, and I don't, I haven't, not a scholar of the, the Bush administration enough to, to say whether this continued for the full duration of, of his administration. But at the beginning, at least he was very like, no, this is not about Islam. This is about Al Qaeda. These are bad people. This is sort of an extreme interpretation, and he was—I I, thought—very clear, you know. As someone whose middle name is Kemal and who yeah. has, you know, had to go through airports after 9/11. I mean, look—I'm a white guy. I look like Billy Bob from Texas, but I do have a funny name, and definitely was pulled into side rooms in airports after 9/11 for a couple of years um, before I think I got added to a safe list, and it never happened again. Yeah. But you know, I, I think that there's there was a lot of credit for him not only bringing that up in the speech, but initially.
0: And, and I, I do think he was, as an individual, fairly consistent in those early years of the war on terror on drawing a distinction between terrorism and Islam. Yes. Um, at, at the same time, I think he enabled a great deal of harassment of Muslims, a great deal of cultural rejection uh, of Muslims, and uh, I, I don't think he is, um, I don't think he is as blameless as his words make it sound. Like he hopes to be.
1: Yeah, and I think that's part of the the reconciliation. I mean, another really interesting quote from that speech was he said, "At a time when nativism could have stirred hatred and violence against people perceived as outsiders, I saw Americans reaffirm their welcome of immigrants and refugees." And that's honestly something that he's been harping on a lot recently, sort of out of step with a lot of people in his party, certainly out of step with the last Republican president. But, you know, out of step with a lot of people in the party is he's he's been a lot more kind of like, let's treat people humanely and and immigrants. And I mean, the the choice of the words immigrants and refugees in this speech was, I think, very deliberate.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Would you say, Errol, that he's the kind of guy you'd like to have a beer
1: with? You know, he used to go to my cousin's church. Oh yeah, Terrytown United Methodist Church in Austin, Texas. And I would say, from again one one degree of separation, I think yeah, a lot <laughs> of people would want to have a beer with George W. Bush. That was always the line. What a, what a dumb way to <laughs> position like someone's political strength. Anyway, well, it's sort of like oh, he's a businessman. He's got to be you know he's he's going to be a good president. Like, oh, I want to have a beer with him. He's got to be a good president. (laughs) Uh,
0: In China, the Communist Party honored the memory of 2001 in their own way, uh, which was with some good old throwback homophobia.
1: Yep.
0: Uh, First, The Guardian reported that Shanghai University has asked its colleges to compile lists of all students identifying as LGBT, including their state of mind mental health status, political views, and social contacts.
1: Oh, for Never mind, I'm not going to complete that.
0: Presumably feeling the heat from Texas on completing their Handmaid's Tale bingo card. (laughs) Kind of followed up a few days later with an announcement from the state media regulator that quote-unquote sissy men would be banned from Chinese television. Oh, my God. Uh, this reflects an apparent concern that Chinese pop culture stars uh, are adopting the more feminine aesthetic of some of their South Korean and Japanese counterparts, thus failing to encourage Chinese young men to be masculine
1: enough. So uh, needless to say, they would not have supported the Met Gala um, <laughs> beige carpet uh, display that we saw this week. Yeah. So on, on a policy
0: level, I think we just we wish China the best in its quest for hyper-masculinity. Uh, It sure would be a shame if they ended up with a a bunch of fruitless wars as a result against things like terror or drugs or Afghanistan or Christmas. But on a human level, this official stigmatization, list building, and dehumanization of gay people are steps down a worryingly slippery slope. Um, Being a gay person in China right now must be absolutely harrowing. And uh, we can only hope that these are you know, one-off experiments that receive enough local blowback that they don't go
1: any further. It's interesting because, you know, I'm not a China scholar, but I've been reading a lot more about China in the last few years. And there's actually a lot of domestic um, fissures in China that, uh, you know, the, the Chinese Communist Party tries to control this being one of them. And it's, it's sort of like to varying degrees of success. And so, you know, remains to be seen. I, I think there had been a movement within certain parts of China, certain cities, et cetera, Shanghai being one of them, um, to, to be a little bit more small L liberal with regards to, to more cultural things like this. But, I, you know, this, is, this has got Xi Jinping written all over it um, and a sort of hyper-masculine version of what, you know, a country looks like. Um, it's, it's Putin-esque if you will. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think there are a lot of parallels there for sure.
0: Um, and I will also add as a coda just this morning, Tuesday morning of this week, uh, a, uh, Chinese volleyball player named Sun Wenjing came out as lesbian, uh, publicly over social media in China, which, um, you just have to uh, for her. applaud the courage that that took in this environment. And, and to your point about fissures, um, and maybe the Chinese communist party being out of step with the population, uh, the response on social media has been overwhelmingly positive, just yeah. tens of thousands of, of notes of support. Um, uh, so that's great to see.
1: And hopefully that insulates her for a time. Uh, one thing that I'd love to talk about in the future, Mike, is the winter Olympics are going to be in Beijing, um, right. uh, next year, early next year. And, um, I feel like this is a pretty dark time in China's history, both domestically and they're sort of what they're doing overseas. And so um, I, I'm interested in thinking about kind of how the how the Olympics is obviously a huge opportunity for China to just whitewash everything and be like, hey, we're perfect. We're a great country, which is sort of what they did in 2008 with the Summer Olympics. Um, but I think people are a little bit more aware of what's going on both inside and what Chinese uh, companies and governments or whatever are doing outside of China. So I, I think there's sort of an opportunity for it to be different this time. Um, mm-hmm. Certainly we'll report on it while it's happening, but I, I, it's just something that's on my mind.
0: Yeah, lots to talk about. And that's like
1: next year, right? Yeah, early 2022. Yeah. Yeah. Olympics, back-to-back years. It's like a trend. That's right. Um, Hopefully not as yeah, you know, that's, that's the,
0: the silver lining of the ongoing and maybe growing pandemic cloud. Yeah. Um, speaking of silver linings around COVID, uh, a research team at the university of Arkansas has identified a potential cause of so-called long haul COVID in which up to 30% of COVID-19 patients experience fatigue, brain fog, and shortness of breath for weeks or months after the disease has otherwise run its course. Is the cause (laughs)
1: anti-vaxxers?
0: Well, specifically, uh, the researchers have honed in on an antibody that emerges weeks after an initial infection and disrupts the ACE2 enzyme, which helps regulate the immune system. Uh, If the study is valid and replicable, this finding would open up a range of potential treatments to prevent long haul COVID, which has been sort of a mystery until now, uh, even in in the scientific community. Um, So I don't have much to contribute to this uh, early stage science at this point, but Mm -hmm. I will add one modest proposal here, which is let's not make the same mistake we did with the vaccines on this one. Like sure, figure out which drugs work and market them through doctors and pharmaceutical companies. That's great. But this time, Let's also just like slide them into a dietary supplement and tell Joe Rogan it's
1: awesome.
0: <laughs> let's, let's put them into like some kind of saline solution, slap a label on the bottle that says it's like a granite cleaner and get the <laughs> ivermectin crew to, to take it on. You know, we, can, we can do this if we work smarter, not harder.
1: <laughs> Full support. There's been like these commercials that have come out like on The Daily Show and stuff that's basically of, of similar vein. Like, you know, this is a horse vaccine. You should take it. You know, no, that's good news, uh, Mike. I, I think that's really exciting. You know, long haul COVID is, I think, for for a long time been this very vexing part of this whole thing. That's that's very scary for for people that have gotten COVID for sure. Also, in good news, just a brief thing. We we've talked about the childhood tax credit here, and we've we've talked about kind of efforts to reduce childhood poverty and and there was just a I saw this in The Economist actually today that that uh, there was a new study done by some scholars or maybe not a full study but just calculations done by some Columbia University scholars that essentially say that the childhood poverty rate in July was 41 percent lower than what it should have been wow you know and so it's sort of like you know certain parts of the internet were really scoffing when Earlier this year, President Biden pledged to oversee the largest ever one year decrease in childhood poverty in the history of the United States. End quote. And honestly, it looks like it's happening. I mean, the the overall rate of childhood hunger, which is a which is a really um, good way of gauging this childhood poverty rate, the childhood hunger rate went from almost 20% in December 2020, which December 2020 pandemic height of economic crisis, you know, lots, lots going on. So it's sort of a high point, but it's below 10% now. So 20% down to below 10%. Of course, that still means that 10% of families in the United States that have children report, not having enough food to eat, you know, before they go to bed, which is bad, but you know, at least we're trending in the right direction and fairly quickly. So that's a, that's a great deal of misery avoided, uh, for children in our country. That's really awesome. Yeah, I think news and brews can, can approve decreases in childhood poverty.
0: New, news and brews bump to the yes. decrease in childhood poverty right there. Absolutely. There's actually one one other thing I'll quickly call out from The Economist this week. So the cover story for The Economist US edition was about the anniversary of 9-11. But the cover story in the rest of the world was actually sort of somewhat related to the conversation we've been having on Afghanistan, but specifically looking at the issue of women's rights. And I would recommend uh, that everyone go and read just even like the leader article, you know, at the front of The Economist Mm -hmm. uh, about this, because it was fascinating. The data that they compiled on the correlation between rights for women And all of these other measures of uh, national well-being, you know, economic output and productivity and other rights, human rights that flow along with rights for women, you know, not getting into wars, having more successful uh, negotiations with other countries. It was really, really fascinating and eye-opening. And, you know, we, of course, uh, have long been uh, advocates for women's rights on this show, but just put it in another context and, and put some kind of real politic or, or real hard interests around uh, the advocacy of rights for women. And, and I, I hope that that uh, gets through to some people who uh, may have been less receptive to it up until now.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's there's lots of studies over the years on this. McKinsey did a study several years ago. I, I don't know the exact percentage, but it's essentially like we're leaving probably trillions of dollars worth of GDP on the table just from an economic perspective mm-hmm. by not having more equality in, in our economies, in the peace building space, when women are involved in, in peace agreements and peace negotiations, they last longer, they benefit more people. Uh, I mean, it's just, I mean, you and I at the sort of familial level, Mike can attest that like life is better when women lead, but I think that there's actual like data um, behind this. So yeah, thanks for bringing that up. For sure. All right. Should we get on to our main story? Yeah, let's do it. Let's talk vaccines. All
0: right. On Thursday, President Biden announced a combination of measures amounting to a vaccine mandate for over 100 million Americans or nearly two thirds of the nation's workforce. The most significant new rule comes from the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, which will require all employers with 100 or more workers to ensure their employees are vaccinated or tested weekly, with companies facing thousands of dollars in fines per worker if they don't comply. The measures also include requirements for government workers and contractors to get vaccinated uh, with no option to opt out by getting tested regularly. Wow. Um, and I think, you know, there it's worth mentioning that the announcement of these measures was striking not just in substance, but also in the change of tone from Biden, who has generally led with empathy and understanding of the skepticism and, and decision-making of Americans.
1: No, dude, um, he's,
0: he's pissed. But he said... Vaccinated America was growing, quote unquote, frustrated with the 80 million people who have yet to get the vaccine and quote, we've been patient, but our patience is wearing thin and your refusal has cost all of us,
1: end quote. And then, and then he just like lifted up the mic awkwardly out of the podium and then just like threw it on the floor. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I I think it
0: is. It's about time. I, well, and, and on one level, it's only been a couple of weeks since the Pfizer
1: vaccine got full FDA approval. Yeah, so yeah. by
0: government standards, I think this is actually moving quite quickly, um, but certainly welcome news.
1: Yeah. And and had obviously like been in the wings for a while, you mm-hmm. know, and I think they were holding until the full Pfizer approval came, which I'm I'm assuming that the Moderna one is not too far behind. That'd, but be, that'd yeah. be such a head fake. <laughs> Psych! <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean it's it's certainly um, I- exciting, but I'm I'm guessing not everybody thought it was exciting. Yeah, so let's let's talk about some of the reactions.
0: Um, the <laughs> reaction from Republican politicians has been as measured and rational as you would expect. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy blustered that we should have no vaccine mandates of any kind. Uh, before reverting to his trademark silence in the face of follow-ups about whether he really, really thought we should be rolling back the long-standing mandates for things like the measles vaccine in places like schools in the military.
1: Yeah. Um, Seatbelts, drinking while driving. There's a whole bunch of things that are like, for public safety, you should just do this.
0: Right, right. The, the Just expanding on the principle of like your freedom to swing your fist ends where someone else's (laughs) face begins. Like I think sort of allows for vaccine mandates to come into play here.
1: I I mean, neither of us are legal scholars, but let's
0: hope that that's the case. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Then on Tuesday, the day we're recording this, the state of Arizona became the first to file suit against the Biden administration over the new mandates with Arizona attorney general, Mark Burnovich saying the federal government cannot force people to get the COVID-19 vaccine. The Biden administration is once again flouting our laws and precedents to push their radical agenda. So there's that.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's definitely like consultation of the thesaurus in development of hyperbole happening (laughs) in all of these like responses. Um, I mean, to Ted Cruz's credit, he doesn't need a thesaurus. He has a very, you know, he's a smart guy. Um, Mm -hmm. And so he just pulls these out of one part of his body. But they, I think, you know, these statements that are coming out, and I'm sure there's going to be more coming out, are, I'm surprised that, you know, the Arizona AG statement didn't reference communism and fascism in the same breath. You know, he's, he's no Donald Trump, that Mark Bernovich. Yeah, he's got some work to do there. But I'm, I'm sure it it was met, speaking of Trump, I'm sure it was met with uh, you know, cause, cause Trump won Arizona. Right. So, you know, (laughs) just, just one, one more day that we can be, uh, grateful that Trump is not on social media. Fair. Yeah. I was actually surprised a little bit that it was Arizona. Not that. I mean, look, there's obviously lots of folks like the attorney general who live in Arizona, but you know, Joe Biden did win, win Arizona and it's at least a purple state. Now And so, you know, I I sort of expected this in like an Alabama, but uh, well, I think there's something like 15 or 20 states that have said they are going to
0: file suit. It's like, I think the Republicans in elected positions here, see it as a way to gin up the base. The problem for them is that I think this really, if you look at the polling is a wedge issue, more in the Democrats favor, where you have Democrats pretty united behind you know, science-based approaches to pandemic management, where Republicans are, are not. Uh, there, there is a significant portion of Republicans who are in favor of vaccines, even in favor of vaccine mandates, um, and then clearly many who are not. Uh, and so I think this is a little bit more fraught with peril than you would think of the traditional red meat talking point showy lawsuit
1: being for uh, Republican state leaders, which is, I think, why you see Kevin McCarthy and other Republican leaders say their, you know, thesaurus generated statement and then not take questions, because I think it's like they they want to throw red meat to the lions, but they don't actually want to talk about this. I mean, there was even less Republican response after this um, Texas abortion law, which we you know, I was out last week, so we didn't have an opportunity to talk about that. But, you know, there was obviously this uh, really restrictive six-week ban that the Texas legislature passed, and now the Biden administration is challenging in court and stuff. But I think, you know, you saw, I would say... Abortion is probably less of a wedge issue than vaccines are. And you saw like a lot of silence and a lot of, I think, probably fear out of Republican, national Republican politicians in their unwillingness to, to respond. And, and so I think on this, it's like, you know, they, they can go out there and parrot whatever they heard on I don't know, Tucker Carlson or something, but it's at the same time, like not actually a, an issue that they feel like they're going to win out on. And, and I think part of that is because companies want this. Like you talk about companies that have over a hundred employees. These are like big, you know, they they don't want there to be COVID outbreaks in their factories and their, you know, uh, you know, open floor plan offices. I think like that's, that's not in an anybody's benefit. And so I think that there's, you know, I'd be curious of your reaction of of this, Mike, but I I think a hell of a lot of people are going to get vaccinated because of this.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting to think about what the expected impact uh, will be, because I agree with you. I think that mandates mean something, whether it's a mask mandate or a vaccine mandate, um, people may not be happy with it on an individual or a policy level. Um, but they they do carry weight and there are real penalties tied to this. I don't think it's entirely clear what the enforcement regime would look like, you know, whether whether OSHA is staffed to take on something of this scale with, with any real teeth. But the threat of fines for companies that are really meaningful is certainly there.
1: Well, and, and like I said, I think companies don't want to appear as as, you know, bad guys to their employees. And so... I think what this does is it gives companies kind of like, Oh, it's not us. It's the government, you know, you got to go do it. And so it gives them this thing to hide behind that they probably wanted to do anyways, but they didn't want to piss off their employees. And so I, you know, is this going to work in every case for every company that has over a, you know, a hundred employees? Like, no, obviously not. But I think there's so many people that for you know, reasons that are hesitancy-related, not like anti-related, that this is going to like serve to push over the edge and, and get a vaccine. Yeah, I hope so at least. Yeah. Um, what about so
0: we we've got these uh, this challenge now from Arizona, more expected to come from other Republican-led states. What do you think the prospects are of of this mandate holding up in court?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm not a lawyer, but I can pretend to be one on News and Bruce, I guess. Um, but look, I, I, I think it's hard to see how this holds up now that the Pfizer is fully approved. To see um, how it holds up. Yeah, I, I, I feel like it's hard to see how the Arizona lawsuit is victorious. Should I put it that way? Um, uh, so, you, so you do it. You do think that the mandate will hold up. I think the mandate will hold up. I think it's like the challenges to the mandate will not hold up. Um, Because I think your point about like, what are we going to roll back measles? You know, like, are we going to reintroduce polio into society? Like what, like, there's so much kind of vaccine precedent. And like, the arguments are going to be like, oh, but you know, we've been doing that. We know exactly what the results are of those. And we've been doing them for decades and stuff. But like, when those vaccines were first put out there, they didn't have the mountain of data on those that we have now. And yet there were still mandate there's still lots of precedent, I think, of this for public safety reasons happening. Um, and I think like, I don't know, getting back to Biden's statement, like I, I liked the fire. I liked the anger because mm-hmm. I, you know, I try to be, I I try to understand, I'm sure we all have family and friends who are in this camp. Like I try to understand where people are coming from and where their hesitancy lies, but like part of me is just really pissed off.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of people are feeling that for sure. And I think it's you know, something that Republicans have been better than Democrats at for a long time is channeling the anger uh, of their voters into a way that helps them. I think this is an example of Biden channeling anger in an appropriate direction, right? At the people who are refusing for some indeterminate reason um, to protect themselves and the people around them. So I I agree with you. I think in terms of the legal prospects, you're right. There's precedent going back to like 1905 uh, allowing for vaccine mandates to happen. So I think the legal argument you know, in favor of the mandates and uh, against the challenges to them is quite strong. That being said, I think something like 28% of the federal judiciary was appointed by Donald Trump right now. That's terrifying. Um, you know, including, uh, what three of the nine Supreme court justices, they've got a six three majority, which means that even assuming that like the, uh, case of the Texas abortion bill, you know, that, that Robert's, uh, comes over to sort of side with the liberals. Um, you're depending basically then on like Brett Kavanaugh to uh, allow this to go through. And I was, I was looking up in advance of this, what he said during his confirmation hearing opening statement, where he said, uh, I'm just going to read you a quote from Brett Kavanaugh. This whole two week effort has been a calculated and orchestrated political hit fueled with apparent pent-up anger about President Trump in the 2016 election, fear that has been unfairly stoked about my judicial record, revenge on behalf of the Clintons and millions of dollars in money from outside left-wing opposition groups. This is a circus. He goes on, uh, and he said, as we all know, in the political system of the early 2000s, what goes around comes around. Uh, That was a really
1: dark day. I I actually remember because he was being hammered Mm -hmm. and, and I was wondering like, Oh, is he going to cower? Is he going to apologize? Is he going to do what probably everybody told him to do, which is just shut up. And it was like, Nope. He like, like went out guns blazing and fists up. And like, there was nothing that anybody could do about it. It was, it was a really terrifying moment. Yeah. So ultimately
0: like if this gets to the Supreme court, we live in a system under which, the legal arguments in favor or against the vaccine mandate are actually less important than like what that individual guy thinks.
1: Which is terrifying, which also kind of brings into stark relief the importance of um, the 2022 midterms and making sure that, you know, people who believe in science can at least control you know, what one part of Congress, um, I try not to be too overtly political all the time on this podcast, but I think that there's like, in this particular case, especially there's like, you know, I believe in science and I want there to be vaccines that protect people from deadly viruses. And if the judicial system is not going to protect us, then those sorts of mandates can, and I would argue probably should be legislatively mandated.
0: Um, yeah, yeah. And, and I don't I don't think we've actually addressed on this show the fact that Stephen Breyer needs to retire. So uh, Justice Breyer, in case you're listening, just, you know, news and bruise bump in favor of your retirement.
1: Yeah, he keeps um, obfuscating, like he keeps doing these interviews and, you know, bouncing around this this subject. And even when there's a direct question asked, he just like doesn't want to hear anything about it.
0: I imagine a Supreme court justice would be generally a difficult person to have like a friendship or familiar relationship with. Um, I think maybe we're just all getting a little taste of that.
1: Yeah. And I, I mean, look, I think all of, all nine of the justices, despite what you just said about Brett Kavanaugh, like I think that all nine of them at least say that they want the court to be apolitical and they say that it should be sort of fact and law based or whatever I I mean the reality is that there is a liberal wing of the court and a conservative wing of the court um but I think like he probably Justice Breyer and his heart of hearts would love for it to not matter whether it's you know him or or sort of somebody else but I think it's like that stance is is Just increasingly in denial of reality. Yep.
0: Well, on that uplifting note, Arrow.
1: In the in the increasingly uh, in support of denial, basically. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah, dude. I I mean, we didn't have to fix it this week because Biden (laughs) instituted the vaccine mandate. So you know, (laughs) kudos to Biden for fixing it this week.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's a team team effort on this one, Joe.
1: (laughs) great to see you, Mike. Uh, Likewise, I hope, brother. I hope everyone has a good week. We'll see you next week.
0: Bye everyone. News and Brews is hosted by Mike Heslin and Errol Yavoke. Our producer is Alana Nevins. This episode was recorded Tuesday, September 14th, 2021 at 8.30 PM Eastern time. Look out for new episodes available each Wednesday on all major podcast platforms. Thanks for listening.